You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Fancy Bear is said to be snuffling around at least one U.S. senatorial office. The U.S. National Security Council meets to consider Russian election interference. Notes on Chinese and Iranian cyber espionage. New malware loaders are offered on the black market. Smart home hubs are shown to be hackable. Tenable enjoys a good IPO. And a burglar in Silicon Valley didn't say your money or your life, but rather, dude, I'm out of data. Can I have your Wi-Fi password? From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 27th, 2018. The Daily Beast reports that Fancy Bear is snuffling around Senator Claire McCaskill and some of her staffers. She's a Democrat of Missouri. The GRU apparently fished the senator's office with emails purportedly to notify them that their mic's passwords had expired and directing them to a link that would enable them to reestablish their access with a new password. That link, which of course was bogus, led to a nicely convincing page that looked just like the U.S. Senate's Active Directory Federal Services login page. Each phishing email contained a distinctive link that displayed the target's email address on the phony password reset page. This, of course, lent credibility to what might otherwise be a bald and unconvincing narrative. Senator McCaskill's office appears to be one of the targets Microsoft's Tom Burt alluded to at the Aspen Security Forum last week when he told symposiasts that Redmond had found a fake Microsoft domain being used against various political campaigns. Senator McCaskill is up for re-election this year. She said she's not ready yet to talk about Fancy Bear's phishing attempt, but her office may have something to say next week. The U.S. National Security Council is meeting today in a session chaired by President Trump to discuss election vulnerabilities and, in particular, the prospect of Russian interference in the coming midterm vote. For all the recent concern expressed in the U.S. about Russian election and infrastructure finagling and reconnaissance, Russia is not the only adversary the U.S. faces in cyberspace. This week's report by the National Counterintelligence and Security Center takes note of extensive Chinese and Iranian operations as well. In these last two cases, the recent activity has tended towards cyber espionage of an industrial kind. Chinese operators work to gain commercial advantage. The center's report listed the areas that have drawn the attention of Beijing's intelligence services, oil, gas, and coal bed methane gas energy extraction technologies, smart grids, solar and wind power, biopharmaceuticals, especially new vaccines and drugs, defensive marine systems and radar technologies, hybrid and electric vehicle systems, pollution control, high-end computing and numerically controlled machines as used in manufacturing, space infrastructure and exploration technology, synthetic rubber, 
rare earth materials, quantum computing, and next-generation broadband wireless. With Iran, the goals are less economic advantage than they are direct, hard kinetic power. Tehran's hackers are out for technology that could improve its missile and space programs. The Iranian threat group called out in the center's report is being called Rocket Kitten, it being as customary to give Iranian groups feline names as it is to call Russian ones bears. Rocket Kitten is not to be confused with Rocket Man, who's either Kim Jong-un or Elton John. So again, for those of you keeping score at home, if it's a bear, it's Russian. If it's a panda, Chinese. Cats and kittens are Iranian because, of course, Persian cats. There's less system about other countries, although there's some disposition to see North Korean cobras and Indian elephants, which somehow seems a throwback to the representation of delirium tremens in the old classic pre-code animated cartoons they used to show really early on Saturday mornings, like Farmer Brown or Betty Boop. Anyway, Flashpoint researchers report that malware loaders continue their evolution and proliferation. They offer two new loaders, Aurora and Cardon, as examples. They're both for sale in dark web criminal markets. Aurora boasts that it's not only undetectable, but that it also features the ability to create self-healing bots. Cardon's selling point is simplicity. It arrives on victim machines with what Flashpoint calls a fully integrated bot shop. Cisco's Talos Group has found 20 vulnerabilities in Samsung's SmartThings hub controllers. They say flaws could enable attackers to control the smart home from light bulb to thermostat and to remotely monitor activity through connected devices. Cisco discloses these discoveries responsibly, so Samsung has had an opportunity to develop fixes. Users should look for updates. Google's security keys, which the company says protect its 85,000 employees from phishing, look good, but unsurprisingly, they're not a 24-carat perfect password alternative. No before suggests ways in which the keys might prove hackable. Again, that's not to say that the keys aren't a good thing, but it is to recognize that cybersecurity deals with conflict, and that conflict occurs among human beings who see, learn, react, and adapt. Tenable began offering its shares on the Nasdaq yesterday, and its debut was a very good one, up 32% at closing. Investors like its subscription model and have given the company a value of somewhere around $3 billion. Two other IPOs in the sector that analysts widely expect in the not-too-distant future are CrowdStrike and Tanium. Those who work in the industry will recognize buzzword bingo, which may be played during long sessions of PowerPoint in corporate offices. If you hear the briefer offer a sentence like, We'll leverage synergy for an out-of-the-box disruptive innovation. You're entitled to holler, Bingo! You can play a similar game with the news, Cliché Bingo. Insofar as the news instantiates clichés, and it must be factual news, not opinion journalism, track it on your card and look for five in a row. Here's a story that's almost there. Ars Technica reports an arrest in Palo Alto, California. That's the very heart of Silicon Valley, of course, in which a young man, aged 17, so his name has been primly redacted from the police reports, broke into a couple's home in the middle of the night. He appeared in their bedroom and awakened them with a request to use their Wi-Fi because, as he put it, he was out of data. He was wearing a mask at the time, that's at least four clichés right there. 
If it turns out he wanted the Wi-Fi so he could play Fortnite, we'd be hollering bingo loud enough so everyone could hear from Baltimore to Berkeley. Sad. Today is Sysadmin Appreciation Day, the 19th annual one. Do something nice for your system's administrators, and remember, the four saddest words in the world when spoken by a manager are, why don't we just make them happier words by following them with Knock off early and go out for pizza on the company dime. Have a great weekend, everybody. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Dr. Charles Clancy. He's the director of the Hume Center for National Security and Technology at Virginia Tech. Dr. Clancy, welcome back. Um, You know, over the years, we've seen more and more uh, RF spectrum being carved out, uh, being reprovisioned, I suppose, for uh, digital services, and that makes sense. Um, But I'm wondering, is it automatic that as we carve away uh, analog, what used to be analog radio spectrum, uh, does the stuff that replaces it automatically become digital? And are there cases where uh, it makes sense to sometimes leave things analog? That's a great point. If you look at the transition uh, of many different types of wireless signals, uh, we've seen the transition of uh, FM radio to digital. We've seen the transition from uh, broadcast UHF and VHF television uh, to digital. Uh, And even the cell phone standards that we use, uh, 1G cell phones were were all analog. But as we've moved to 2G, 3G, 4G, and now 5G, uh, they're increasingly sophisticated and increasingly digital. Um, So... I think there's a variety of perspectives you can take on that. Uh, first, digital is always going to be more efficient. You can always pack more data into the same spectrum uh, and do it in a more flexible way if it's digital. But a digital uh, transmission and receiver system is inherently more complicated, more sophisticated. Uh, if you think back to uh, perhaps the 1970s and 1980s, being able to build a, a crystal radio and listen in to uh, FM and AM broadcasts, sure. uh, that's really not possible with, with modern technologies. 
But even from a security point of view, I mean, I think about something like you know, before everything went uh, mobile devices, you know, we had cordless phones in our homes. And the analog ones, uh, your next door neighbor with a, a scanner could listen to your conversations. When they went digital, they couldn't do that anymore. Oh, exactly. So digital offers the ability to provide encryption and authentication that you really can't do in an analog context. Um, and in fact, that was one of the big use cases for 2G uh, was that uh, the 1G phones of, of the 1980s, uh, particularly on the West Coast, there was uh, so much fraud uh, that the, the networks were starting to fall apart because no one was paying for service. Uh, so one of the driving use cases for 2G was, well, if we can actually uh, use encryption to uh, effectively authenticate users and effectively bill users. Now, are there still some legacy systems out there? I'm thinking, for example, of uh, things like air traffic control. They're still on an analog system, aren't they? Uh, yes, there are many systems that are still analog from shortwave radio, to VHF. Uh, a lot of the amateur radio bands are still uh, all analog. Um, and then certainly, as you point out, things like air traffic control, uh, are are still primarily analog. Analog has a lot of, of features going for it. Uh, generally, the, the quality of the signal is better over longer ranges. However, uh, again, it has the uh, it, it lacks those security features. So, air traffic control is an interesting example where um, we want resiliency and we want to have less sophisticated transmitters and receivers so that we're more guaranteed that the system will be available and functional. But at the same time, it leaves them open uh, to jamming and spoofing and other sorts of attacks, which uh, potentially could be catastrophic in a scenario like air traffic control. No, it's interesting. All right. Well, as always, Dr. Charles Clancy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With identity orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is Lisa Beagle. She's Akamai's Senior Manager of Security Intelligence. Today we're discussing Akamai's summer edition of their State of the Internet Security Report. Now, what are you seeing in terms of overall longer-term trends? Is, uh, is the velocity increasing? Are the, um, are the abilities to fight these things uh, keeping pace? Where do things stand today? So I would say that I've seen a couple of things. One is this year I'm seeing the multi-gig attacks again, whereas last year you probably saw anything around 200 megs of sorts was kind of the highlight. But I also um, attribute that to the fact that the attackers got smarter. And what I mean by that is from an alerting standpoint, they understand what those thresholds were. 
So if you hit somebody with 100 gigs in 30 seconds, the chances of there being an actual documented alert minimizes. So when you're looking at actual attack activity, you're seeing some of those smaller numbers. Whereas now I'm seeing that trending of, you know, two gigs, 10 gigs, 100 gigs, plus types of attacks. I mean, obviously the, the 1.35 terabits was significant. And there were some indicators prior to that of 200 plus gig attacks. So you are seeing that. I think the other thing is, is there's more access. So when you're looking at the uptick of overall attacks themselves, that increase, there's a huge mix of, you know, the gamers, the script kiddies, as well as some of the more astute and educated type of attackers and discerning the two becomes a little cloudy mm. because you do see in some instances targets that see both. Um, and in some instances, you see just that specific targeted. So that memcached attack, that was specifically targeted to a single organization. Um, and you could identify that. You didn't see that overlap of attack activity. So I think that because you have more resource, and one, one highlight would be the YouTube attack with the 12-year-old developer. Um, and, you know, I had a conversation with somebody before, and they said, well, yeah, he's 12. That being said, the complexity associated with attack meant that he was capable. Um, and the fact that you are seeing younger folks that have those types of capability is concerning from a futures perspective. Yeah, I think uh, it's an interesting perspective. I mean, when you look at, uh, you know, the ability to amplify attacks, the way that the memcached attacks took place, um, be able to, there are multipliers there. And, and you have to wonder what, uh, you know, what are the unknowns uh, in the future in terms of capabilities to that, that, that level of amplification? Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, that was obviously a rarity. That doesn't necessarily mean it's an anomaly. There are probably things that a lot of us aren't aware of. I mean, this was something that I do believe was, was identified several years ago, but it was the change that was made by Linux um, inadvertently, so to speak, that really did cause the, the greater collateral damage from an exposure standpoint, whether that's because organizations didn't have enough resource and weren't aware of that being exposed or, you know, just because of the change itself. So it's hard to say, but you have to, you have to believe that once things are out there from a vulnerability standpoint, there are ways to then adapt and conform them. And I think that's kind of the risk that we face today. There's so much out there that it's hard to say where the next thing's going to come from. I mean, there's always chatter with some of these botnets um, and you see the old toolkits being reused. You're seeing, you know, even from a takedown perspective, things that were taken down many years ago reemerging in a different way. So it's it's kind of an arms race of sorts. Now, what are your recommendations for folks looking at the trends as you're tracking them? Uh, what do you uh, what are some of the things you recommend in terms of folks protecting themselves? I think first and foremost, understanding their own environments becomes key. And I know that's not always easy, but you have changing resource, you have changing network configurations, you have changes within providers themselves, but really wrapping their heads around what their environment looks like first and foremost, and keeping track of that is very, very important, whether that's from acquisitions or downsizing. So I think that in and of itself exposes a customer in some way. 
The other thing is ensuring that once they've kind of identified those components in their environment, making sure that they aren't vulnerable in some way. And if they are taking action or assessing what that risk potentially could be from a business perspective, um, and then incorporating all of that into their internal runbook or playbook of sorts and identifying what is acceptance of risk, what is not, who are our providers, where do we have some level of exposure, what's our redundancy, um, and then executing that. You've got to practice it, you've got to understand it, and you have to do that at a minimum every quarter because everything is changing. We change our environment, the customer changes their environment. So anything as it relates to reacting, identifying, Seconds, minutes can be incredibly impactful from a decision-making standpoint, from an identification standpoint. So I, if I had to say anything, those are kind of those key components in understanding your environment, practicing and executing and understanding what that risk might be. That's Lisa Beagle from Akamai. You can find their summer edition of the State of the Internet Security Report on their website. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.